Let me ask you, a, not a rhetorical question, I'd like to hear some answers. When do, and, and I can ask this two ways. I can ask it, when do you trust God? Or if you're a little bit too threatened by that question, when do people trust God? Secondhand uh, a pronoun. So when, when do you trust God? Talk to me. Always? I'm impressed. Good for you. I wish I was that mature. Seriously. When do you trust God? When you're in trouble? Sorry? When you're afraid, when you're scared. Good. When you're sick? No other alternative. <laughs> I guess I got to trust God. Yeah. When do you trust God? I'm sorry? I'm, I'm sorry. Am I here? When you know who he is. If you know him, then you trust him. When do you, after your prayer is answered. Interesting. I love that. Yeah. Let me flip it. When do you not trust him? When you think you got it, okay. When you're scared, yeah. The other side of it. When life is too comfortable. When it's inconvenient. When it's hurtful. I don't like it. I don't like what I'm going through, Lord. Appreciate that. When do you not trust God? When we forget. When you want to do it your way, I like my way better than waiting. I like my way better than losing a job or having to move or whatever. When we look at this, these last two dreams, um, I want to suggest this, this idea that the only time most of us trust Christ is when we're in between. The time, the fulcrum of our faith typically is when we're in between wanting and having. And that, that zone is where we have this opportunity. Am I going to trust him in his word or rely on myself? Or I don't like God's plan. I don't like waiting. I don't like the in-between times. And yet I would submit, uh, and one of you said this uh, very succinctly, um, when all the, you know, I have to trust him when it's not working, and I don't like that necessarily. It's hard. It's hurtful sometimes to trust him. Well, we're going to look at these last two dreams of Joseph. I'd like to reread the passage for our framework. This is from Matthew chapter 2, verses 19 to 23. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead so Joseph got up took the child and his mother and came into the land of Israel but when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in over Judah in the place of his father Herod he was afraid to go there then after being warned by God in a dream he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, plural. He shall be called a Nazarene. Herod dies. Any of you familiar with Joseph, Josephus and his antiquities book? 
Uh, Josephus was a first century Jewish writer. It's really the only, uh, you talk here about sources and source history. It's really the only Jewish source history we have on the life of Christ. It's extra biblical, meaning it's not the Bible. It's written outside and after the Bible. It's a tome. For those of you who read like Paul Johnson or you know big massive books, this is right in your wheelhouse. It's arcane language. It's difficult to read. Uh, it's about 85% reliable. 15%, all historians, you have to take some of it through their lens. But Josephus records a gruesome, horrific death about the would-be King Herod. And now that Herod has died, and it's interesting, our, our English Bible says Herod died. The Greek text literally says Herod came to an end. I like that a lot better. He came to an end. It was over. And the juxtaposition couldn't be more dramatic. He came to an end after trying to kill the Christ, and the Christ is the one who's eternal. He's willing to murder children over this threat of this would-be king named Jesus. Uh, Jameson Fawcett Brown write in their massive commentary, Miserable Herod, thou foughtest thyself safe from a dreadful rival, but it was he only that was safe from thee. You, you thought you could kill all these two-year-old and younger Hebrew boys and sort of exterminate the masses and get the one you were after, but you didn't succeed, and the one that got away is the true king. Again, an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream. This is the third of four times. Get up. It connects the narrative back to the prior one. Get up. It's the same expression we talked about a couple of weeks ago when you go in and tell your son or daughter, get up, get up. It's time to go to school. It's time to go to work. Tell your husband, it's time to get up in the morning. I was, we were talking the other day with some friends about, actually my son-in-law and I were talking about this. When, when you were asleep as a kid, uh, you got warnings. And the first was, get up, it's time. And the second time, Dad would come in and cut on the light. Get out of bed. Well, the third time he came in, you would get up. Because what he would do, he would grab the sheet and the blanket, and he would take it off the bed. Not off you, but literally off the bed. And then, of course, you had to make the bed, which made your morning even longer. So I was thinking that, get up. Okay, I'll get up. <laughs> I want to make the bed. It's time to get up. It's the same exact phraseology. Get up. The connection moves the passage. For those of you Bible students, four times Egypt is mentioned in this section. It's unusual. And if you know the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John's the outlier, right? Matthew is written to primarily a Jewish audience. Matthew's primary thesis and theme is the kingdom of God, which makes the interaction and detail about Herod and the king all the more relevant because he's talking to an audience that primarily is listening and reading from a Jewish perspective. Each gospel has a little different address and a different audience. Joseph was told to go into the land of Israel, as Christy pointed out, and this phrase only occurs twice in the entire New Testament right here, to go into the land of Israel. So again, the Jewish mindset, the pious, God-fearing, believing Jews go, this is about a king. This is about Egypt versus Israel. This is registering very well with them. It'd be like talking SEC in this room. We all know what we're talking about. And this audience, when he's reading uh, the subsequent gospel, they would completely understand. Those who sought the child's life are dead. 
Now, if you're a careful Bible reader, you might go back in your mind to something similar in Exodus. In Exodus 4, 19, remember Moses had killed a man and he fled because he was found out and he goes to Midian. And in Exodus 4, 19, we read, now the Lord said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt for the men who are seeking your life are dead. The Septuagint is a Greek rendering of the Old Testament, to put it simply. When you compare this phrase with what we're reading about the Christ, they're almost, not, not verbatim, but they're very close in language. I don't think that's coincidental. I don't think there are any coincidences in the Bible. There's connections in the Bible. And so we're, we're being tossed back, again, the Jewish listener, thinking about the kingdom of God, knowing about Egypt and Israel, and they hear this phrase, uh, go back to Egypt, for the men who are seeking your life are dead. The parallel of Egypt and Israel back and forth. The other thing we have with the broad scope here is the whole life of Christ geographically. We've got Egypt, Israel, Galilee, and Nazareth, and, and, and Judah. So we've got all this geography, almost like a palette, a geographical prophetic palette of where Christ is going to live. Well, the fourth dream warns him to move to northern Galilee. Now, again, I remind you, for those who haven't yet been to Israel, it's about the size of the state of Connecticut. It's not a big place. The so-called Galilee or sea region, uh, the, sea, the Sea of Galilee is a lake, not a sea. And many people are underwhelmed when they go there, but then they, the romance of it is pretty dramatic, and you fall in love with Galilee very quickly. It's the Lake District. Some of you might go to the lake for the weekend. You might have a lake house. And something about you go and you know, the, the, the Williamson County just kind of sheds off of you. And you drive to you know, Smith Lake or Tim's Ford, wherever it is you go, and, and you sit and look at water and you go, ah. Same thing happens when you go to Galilee today. Leave the hustle and bustle of Tiberias, of Jerusalem, the city of Tel Aviv, and you go to the lake. Same was true in antiquity. The region of Galilee is not just the Sea of Galilee. It's all the area around it. When we moved from the Chicago to Middle Tennessee, um, I, I was asking people, why do you all say Middle Tennessee? Or why do you say Eastern Tennessee? Or Western Tennessee? It's almost like derogatory. Oh, that's Eastern Tennessee. That's West Tennessee. I'm whatever. I'm, I'm in Middle Tennessee. The same is true everywhere you live. When we lived in D.C., there was Northern Virginia and nobody else mattered. They didn't. If you look at the state of Virginia, a little tiny triangle, all the population and money is in northern Virginia. The rest is country. And then, of course, if you live in D.C., you're not in D.C. Same was true in Texas. We lived in Texas many years, Cindy, most of her life. You have East Texas, West Texas, North Texas, Panhandle, South Texas. We differentiate. Think of Galilee as a region, not just a lake, and there are areas around it of which Nazareth is a part of the larger area of Galilee. But again, we're talking about a state the size of Connecticut that is a country. In this fourth dream, uh, Luis Barbieri, Dr. Barbieri, talks about Archelaus. Now, I've, I've mentioned before, I keep glued in the front of my Bibles the Tetrarch from Her Caesar, Herod the Great, all the way down to the Tetrarchs and different ones. Archelaus is a sort of an oh-by-the-way guy. But listen to what Barbieri writes about Archelaus. He ruled over Judah and other area regions. He was known for tyranny, murder, and instability. His insanity was perhaps linked to the close family intermarriages, which was true about the Herods. They were insane. 
I remember I told you he was a, a megalomaniac that looked like Danny DeVito. That's the way he's been described to me from a friend in Israel. It's a good picture of him. In chapter 22 of Matthew 23, to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, plural, he shall be called the Nazarene. For you community Bible folks, you BSFers, precept folks, you may have done a study on Nazareth and Nazarene. It's an interesting study and one that causes scholars today to scratch their heads about what in the world does this Nazareth and Nazarene thing mean. I'm just going to give you a high view of it. First of all, there's no specific prophecy in your Bible that says he shall be called a Nazarene. So when Matthew writes, according to the prophets, spoken, he should be called a Nazarene, everybody's going, where? Where? Of course, if you're a person that doesn't believe the Bible, or you have a perspective that says, see, the Bible is inconsistent, then you can easily attack it. If you're a Bible study person, that makes you go, well, what's going on here? What's behind this? Uh, let me give you a little bit of an overview of what it means, because we hear this concept, Jesus the Nazarene. In fact, uh, in recent years on our tours to Israel, we actually go to the little town of Nazareth, and it, it, was, it was hard to go to in the past, and uh, in no small part because whether you like him or not, Mike Huckabee's tours, uh, he would go to Nazareth with these groups. And he was so effective in going there, they've rebuilt this little area. It's a village of Nazareth. And it's a period. It's like if you go to these, um, I, I call them patchouli conferences, where people dress up in like Shakespeare, you know, and you smell patchouli and all these interesting actors, you know what I'm talking about. So the Nazareth village is like that. You go to this little village and people are in period costume and they got sheep and they got olives and they got vineyards. And, and they show you how to take wool off an animal and turn it into thread. It's pretty interesting. They show you how wine and olive press work. It's pretty interesting. And so it, for visual learners, it's like, oh, this is how it works. One of the coolest parts about Nazareth, when you go there, there is more than likely, and we, we, we grade things A, B, and C. A, this is a legit site. We know Christ was here. We know there's biblical history here. B, pretty likely. C, we're not too sure. This is an A site. And there is a what is considered a public area for your uh, wine press. And so the community had vineyards. Israel's full of vineyards. It's a big part of their, of their economy. And so in antiquity, when harvest time, when the grapes were being harvested, it was a big celebration for the community. And we went out and we all did our wine press gig. And so the wine then is collected in, this, in the stone. And some of you have been there and walked around. It's very interesting. So Nazareth is a, it's a, it's a geographic place, but we don't have a prophet recording he will be called a Nazarene. He will come out of there. So let me give you a little background. First of all, Isaiah 11.1 1 says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. A branch from his roots will bear fruit. A shoot will extend from Jesse. A branch will extend. The word branch in Hebrew is Natsar. Natsar. Roughly transliterated N-A-S-A-R. Natsar. It means something insignificant. Literally, it means something that's meaningless. Uh, the prophets talk about straw that's so worthless you can't hang anything on it. It's just, it just going to break. Some of you have tried to hang a picture without finding a stud in the wall. You've put a little hanger in there, and it's found its way on the floor afterwards. There was nothing there. It was meaningless. That's the idea of this branch. It's a meaningless beginning. So we have this Hebrew word, Nasar. 
Sounds like Nassar, Nazareth. Languages communicate across. Nazareth becomes the name of this little city. If you remember when Jesus calls a disciple and he calls Philip and Philip is going to go find Nathaniel and when he tells him, we have found the master, we have found Jesus, we found the one of whom Moses and the law and the prophets spoke of, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, what does Nathaniel say? Do you remember? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, I'm not going to give you a fill-in-the-blank of some area city where you would say, can anything good come out of fill-in-the-blank? Because I don't want to get in trouble. But you can envision one. You can think derogatorily of some other town and go, can anything good come out of fill-in-the-blank? I mean, you kidding me? Can anything good come out of Auburn? (laughs) You get my point, and I'm not against Auburn. It's just an illustration. Can anything good come out of Knoxville? I don't know. Right now, not so much. But anyway... um, Nathaniel's comment, can anything good come out of Nazareth, is a wordplay. It means nothing. It's a meaningless beginning. It's insignificant. Can anything good come out of an insignificant place? That's what Nathaniel's comment is. Keep in mind, Matthew's audience, Greek, uh, 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 Jews who are pious Jews, who are thinking about the kingdom of God, who are very oriented and focused on Israel, on the land. And he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth in John chapter 146? Hardly any geographical vestiges of royalty. When Bill Clinton uh, ran for president, there was a, a lot of attention to his humble beginnings in Hope, Arkansas. Have you ever driven through Hope, Arkansas? You know what's there? Not much. There's some signs there that say the home of Bill Clinton. That's about it. A very, very modest home where he grew up. There's not much there. It's a very humble place. It's, oh, by the way, there's no vestiges of royalty. You'd expect someone to be born in some hoity-toity place. The last part of the wordplay in the prophecy may refer to Numbers chapter 6. And some of you are familiar with what's called a Nazarite vow. The Nazarite vow was for a a pious male Jew who took a vow to be, let's just say, super religious and super faithful and avoid certain things and do certain things sort of really step up his game so a Nazarite vow is an important thing for certain Jews for a certain period of time so we got this word Nazar we've got this the prophets spoke of Jesus would come out of Nazareth but we don't have any chapter or verse in the Old Testament that says he'll be called a Nazarene so we are putting a puzzle together going back to the Hebrew word Nazar and I'm suggesting it's a, it's a double entendre. It means two things. On the one hand, it means it's insignificant. On the other, it means the Jewish piety of a Nazarite vow was like, you're going to do a Nazarite vow? Wow. What he's saying is he came from a meaningless origin, but as a Nazarite, he's far and above the most pious Jew there ever was. So I think it's a beautiful word picture, but it takes a little homework to get there because we don't have a chapter and verse that says Jesus will come from Nazareth other than the quotation in our New Testament. All that was for free. Let's talk about a few lessons. Number one, Joseph obeys the commands of God, even though from a human perspective, uh, it was a great risk to him. Joseph obeys even though it was risk, risky. When I asked you, when do you trust God and when you don't trust God, the tensions we all feel is if there's risk. I don't know if it's going to work. 
And it's hard to trust God when we're not confident this is a good plan. It doesn't make sense to our experience. It doesn't make sense to our wisdom, the way we look at life. And one good lesson I think we're meant to see from Joseph is that here's a man who, contrary to being a good, pious Jew, he did things God asked him to do that were at a risk to him. So a good synonym for faith for you and me is, do you take a risk? I don't mean walk around Highway 65 with a blindfold, trusting God to protect you, but do you, do you take a step of faith where you have confident assurance of something hoped for with the conviction of something not yet seen? But you're trusting him, not your or my decision-making. Joseph, to me, is a great example of that. Secondly, just as God is gracious and he raises a deliverer, again in Exodus 4, now the Lord said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt for the men who were seeking to your life are dead. Um, in this risky process and waiting, he protects Moses. He's going to protect Israel, even though they're in captivity and in prison, basically, making uh, slaves for Egypt. Um, God's gracious, and he raises up a deliverer. In a sense, Joseph is a kinsman redeemer because he takes on this little teenage girl who's pregnant at 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 great risk of his reputation. The kinsman redeemer comes in and marries Ruth the Moabitess. It's like her surname. She can never escape it. She's Ruth the Moabite. And we have the same gracious redeemer here. He asks Joseph and he chooses Mary to bear the son. And God is the gracious redeemer and deliverer. Fourth, Egypt is a place of sojourn and slavery, but it's never a place of rest. Egypt is a place of sojourn and slavery, but never a place of rest. They will go down in Abraham's time, in Joseph's time. They will go down and deal with Egypt when the famine in the land. It's a temporary place for them, but they're not to dwell there. If you know the story of Joseph, well, I love the story when he, he, he tells his, his family, you take my bones and bury them back in my homeland. And if you know anything about Jewish burial, it's really, quite, it's really brilliant what they do. Um, they don't carry a big coffin like we do. They basically let the body decompose over a period of time until there's just bones. And then they have a little bone box. They're called ossuaries. And they're small. Bone box. You can put a whole lot more people in the ground in a bone box than you can in a big a vault. And in a, in a, uh, they still do that today. You go over to Israel, they have ossuaries, small family ossuaries. Um, Joseph said, don't let my bones stay here. Take my bones back to where I was born. I want to go home, so to speak. Egypt was not his place of rest. Joseph, after all his communications with the, the angel of the Lord, he follows in faith at no small risk. He surely faced unknowns, but he goes to Egypt not as a place of permanent or a place of rest, but as a temporary holding place. Israel's story is in and out of Egypt. We can't miss this. The Jewish audience that Matthew's writing to would know these things like the back of their hand. Wow, he took him down to Egypt. Well, he takes him out. Well, then you got Herod over here breathing down his neck. So he uses it as a place of sojourning for safety, just as he did with Israel and with Moses. And the same is true for the child Messiah. Joseph had to do a lot of things in between the announcement and the birth. Joseph had to trust God between danger and fleeing, between moving with a woman who was pregnant complying with tax laws 
Joseph had to live in between the now and the then. That's the cliche. The idea of we know principal truth. You have to live now trusting in then. But until you put some shoe leather on it, it doesn't mean anything. And some of the aggregate lessons for you and me, I think, remind us you live in between. When do you trust God and when do you not trust God? Jesus is the Messiah. He fulfills Scripture. We have a great celebration in our country, in our, in our worldview called Christmas tradition. It's great. Love it. Not, not anti. Don't let the trappings distract the point. He's born to die that we might live. The reality is we're living in between. We're living in between now and then. And that's the life of faith. When you think through the stories of history, whether it's biblical history or even Western history or whatever, the only time growth occurs is when tension occurs. The, the illusion that the American Western mind, Christian included, is bigger, better, newer, more. We get to a place where we can, I'm here to tell you, you're never going to get there. The only time you're in balance is when you go from one extreme to another. And it's very short-lived. And it always looks better in the rearview mirror. <laughs> it always looks better in the rearview mirror. It never looks that good when you're in the middle of it. You know, I have this, it's probably politically incorrect to say it, but I, I think... Um, nostalgia is an early sign of dementia when you think the good old days were the good old days that's an early sign you're headed downhill they weren't the good old days it's just all we knew it was our context faith is in between faith in christ in the garden we look back on that garden incident if only the man and woman had not chosen the hubris to be like god Faith rests in Christ after the flood. Faith rests in Christ when the kingdom was divided. Here's Israel. These are God's people. He's put in his nation. He's basically a theocrat. He's told them, you do what I tell you. I'll bless you. I'll prevent enemies from coming in. Your crops will grow. You'll have children. Your farms will prosper. All you got to do is what I tell you to do. This is pretty simple. And, of course, they don't do it. And the kingdom divides, civil war within the tribes, brother killing brother. Sound familiar in our country? Civil wars? Man's not changed at all. He hasn't changed one iota from the very beginning. Faith rests after the divided kingdom. Faith rests in Christ in the silence in the years before he's born. And when he looked at Zacharias' life and this old man just doing his job. The silence between the Testaments, we call it. What happens between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament? The There's trust in God. Faith in Christ during his ministry on the earth. I find it remarkable that, 30, let's just say he was 33 years of age. We know about this much of his infancy and childhood, and then we got three years and that's it. He's gone. How could a person on the planet in a state the size of Connecticut on foot basically foot travel and word of mouth affect the world and have the consistency between scripture that supports and cannot be unfolded faith rests that during his life on earth even though we're in between what we want they wanted a king they wanted to fix the government they wanted to get these corrupt politicians out of washington they want to throw the bums out of jerusalem they want a king to make things right and just. 
I'm writing a message that I'm going to be sharing in, in February up in Chicago, and I'm, I'm, one of the things I'm toying with is this word justice and how it's become such a, a clarion today. Justice, 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 justice. Interesting how the words come and go in our, in our economy of language. But it's justice. What, what are we saying? It ain't fair. That's what we're really saying. We're whining. It ain't fair. It ain't fair. It ain't fair. Only children think life is going to be fair. Life isn't fair. Bad things happen. Do we trust them in between? When the disciples are following Christ and things are going well with masses and multitudes, they're happy as can be. And they get distracted by that. I want these kids over here. We're having a good time here. Get these children out of the way. And before long, Jesus is excoriating, correcting them, and they're all by themselves. And then they're denying him. And they're running away like scared children, just like we would have. And then they're wondering, he's dead. He's in the ground. Faith trusts that what he said was true, and three days he'd be resurrected. Rest in Christ is between his resurrection and his ascension. And when he goes into heaven, I love the angel. What are you all staring into space for, basically? What are you looking up here? He told you what to do. Goodness gracious, have you been with him those three years? All the things he said came true. He came back from the dead. He walked through walls. He cooked you charcoal fish on the beach for crying out loud. Wouldn't you believe him? I didn't know. He told you what to do. You see, we're not any different than them. We're not any different than the ancients. Christmas, let me suggest, everyone in this room is in between. You're in between loneliness and family and friendships. You're in between health and illness. You're in between financial things. In between employment and unemployment. In between what I wanted and what I got. In between infertility and fertility. You're in between toddlers and teens. Oh, God bless you. You will survive. Remember Howard Hendricks' line, grandchildren are God's reward for not killing your teenagers. <laughs> You're in between. I watch my daughter and son-in-law with, with our grandson, and um, I, I just I marvel at how phenomenal they are as parents. But boy, is it exhausting. I mean, you're supposed to have children when you're young. We all know that, right? I go, I go home and go, wow, I could not do that again. Of course, my wife could, but I'm not going to do it again. Faith in Christ between fill in the blank and fill in the blank. Where are you? You're in between. Something. This isn't a depressing Michael Easley sermon. I'm not trying to make that point. Cheery Michael Easley sermon. What I'm trying to, to press home is the life of Joseph and the dreams and surrounding the birth narratives were a whole story of in-between faith. What? I'm going to marry this girl who's pregnant? What? I'm going to run under the cover of night? What? I'm going to go to Egypt? What about Herod trying to kill these children? What about Archelaus who's probably uh, a little bit crazy in the head? What am I supposed to do? You trust me. And this is the the earthly father figure of the son of man and the woman who spoke with Gabriel and is impregnated by the Holy Spirit to bear the son of God and they're in between just like you and me. Your faith and mine will always be in between.
Don't miss the father figure. Joseph is not a pawn in God's program. He loved him. And Joseph obeyed him. And what I would say to you is, he loves you. Christy told our kiddos, he loves you. He loves you, he loves you, he loves you. He's not mad at you. He's not kicking heaven's floor. He's not wringing his hands, walking around going, those Michael's being stupid again. He was born to die that you might live. May you recalibrate your Christmas on that fact. You're in between. You know, if you and I as believers understand our life is in between, we'd do a lot better, wouldn't we? This is a temporary situation. And it may get better in the future. And things will change. And they will get bad again. And things will change. That's called faith. What do you do as a faithful person? You obey. You go to Egypt. You go back to Bethlehem. You go back to Galilee. You go to Nazareth for a while. You go pay your taxes. It's really that simple. And we make it so hard.